Well, one of the most memorable phrases from the cross that Jesus utters is actually a question. Some of you may be familiar with that question. It was a question in which Jesus declared, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, to be sure, part of what's going on when Jesus asks that question is he's feeling the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulders. Jesus is offering his life in our place, and when he does that, he's feeling every sin, every evil, dark thing in the world crashing down on him. To be sure, there's also something of a mystery in which there's some kind of transaction going on between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, in which the Son is completing his mission. He's doing what he set out to do and offering his life. There's a a cry of Uh, just exhaustion on the part of Jesus. But what you may not know is that what Jesus is actually doing, uh, in 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 addition to those things I just mentioned, is he's actually quoting a psalm from the Old Testament. The first words to Psalm 22 are, My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? If you have a copy of God's word, please turn to Psalm 22. Because I not only want to show you the beginning and the connections from David's life in the Old Testament, where David talked about his hands and his feet being pierced. David talked in the Old Testament about his garments being divided as they cast lots. But I really want you to pay attention to the end of the psalm, because it's in the end of Psalm 22 that I think we see the real reason why Jesus quotes that psalm from the cross. Look at Psalm 22, verse 27, and listen to this. It says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This psalm, brothers and sisters, does not end in defeat. This psalm actually ends in Jesus declaring victory. This psalm ends in David saying that one day there's an anointed king who's going to accomplish such a great victory that all the peoples of the earth will worship him. That even people that have not yet been born at the writing of this psalm, will worship this anointed king. If you had to sum up what this psalm is saying in the closing verses here, you could say it this way. The psalmist is saying that Christ's victory results in global and generational multiplication of the faith. He's saying that through David's experiences, it's pointing to Jesus, who cites the psalm as a way of saying, my victory is going to mean that all the nations of the earth are going to know me. 
and not only just the nations, but there are people that have not yet been born, generations that are going to come to pass later, that will then come to know me as well. Global and generational multiplication is what Jesus is talking about here. Now, the reason that's important for you and for me is because what we recognize is that as believers, if you know Jesus as Savior and Lord, you are a tool in Christ's hands to perpetuate and encourage this global and generational multiplication of the faith. And the simple question I want to talk about this morning is this. How can we, as followers of Jesus, be the tools, the hands and feet of Christ to see this kind of multiplication happen around the world and across generations through families? I want to suggest to you four elements that need to be present in our lives if we're going to pass on the faith, multiplying it generationally, and globally. Number one, I think this passage speaks to one, if we're going to multiply the faith, we have to have a faith worth passing on. Look back in your Bibles at verse 27. He says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. The idea of turning to the Lord implies I'm turning from something and I'm turning to something. See, what this is speaking of is it's speaking of the content of what faith really is. What you really believe is what you really trust. You see, all of us are trusting something today. Some of us today might be trusting our money and our material possessions to to protect us and to keep us safe. Some of us might be trusting our intellect or our ability or our resume or our degrees that we hold and the education that we have, thinking, well, I've got these things. They're going to protect me and keep me safe. Some of us might be trusting relationships, our, our family, our friends. We're trusting that they'll be with us and help us to get through life's difficult seasons. But what this passage is telling us is that actually the one we should trust is not our ability, it's not our money, it's not even our friends and our relationships that we have. What this passage is saying is that the only one we can really trust is Jesus. Okay, so think of it this way. The reason this is hard for us is because if you can picture in your mind's eye on this stage a castle, we are all born into a kingdom of darkness, The Bible talks about this as a domain of darkness. Every human being that's born is born into this world trusting themselves, worshiping themselves. And because we're in this kind of kingdom that we're born into, we're blind, we're deceived into thinking that worshiping ourselves is actually going to make us happy. That if we follow our heart and we fulfill our desires, we're always going to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. The problem is that when we're born into this kingdom of darkness, what we don't see as human beings is that what this kingdom leads us to is destruction. Because, listen to me, you were not born and created to worship yourself. And what we face if we stay in this kingdom and we die in this kingdom, we face the wrath of God in an everlasting hell. 
But Jesus loves us enough, if you can still picture this with me, to develop another kingdom. Jesus Christ comes and develops a kingdom of light. He establishes a kingdom in which the people who live in it exist to worship and praise him. They're not praising themselves. They're not worshiping themselves. They're doing what they were actually designed and made to do, which is to worship their king. People in this kingdom love and praise Jesus. And so the million-dollar question is if this kingdom leads to destruction and this kingdom leads to life, how do we get out of that kingdom and into this one? You see, the problem is the reason you and I can't get out of this kingdom on our own is because of our sin, because of our lying, because of our stealing, because of the lust and the hatred we hold in our hearts. The Bible is clear that we've earned a wage which is death. Someone has to pay for our sin. So what Jesus does in establishing this kingdom of light is he offers his life to take the punishment that you deserve and I deserve on himself. And when Jesus hangs on that cross, you and I are seeing what we should have gotten. And if you can still picture this in your mind's eye, when Jesus dies on the cross and he rises again, it's as if the cross becomes the bridge between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And Jesus makes it possible if we turn from our sin, turn from trusting ourselves, and place our faith and trust in Him, He moves us from this kingdom into His. The reason I spend so much time on that is because, brothers and sisters, if we're going to pass on our faith to the globe and to our great-great-grandchildren that have yet to be born, it's got to start by you and I having a faith that we can pass on to others. You cannot pass on to your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren what you do not have. So here's a question I want you to reflect on, just to think on in your own mind and your own heart. Which kingdom are you in? Are you in the kingdom of darkness, characterized by serving yourself? Or are you in the kingdom of light? Let me tell you one of the ways you can know which kingdom you're in. When you're moved into this new kingdom, Jesus gives you a new identity. I don't know if you've ever seen like movies where someone goes into a witness protection program, right? Where they maybe confess to a crime, but they get all the rest of their associates in trouble. And so they make a deal with the FBI or somebody and they say, I'll confess, but you got to protect me because these guys are going to come get me. And so witness protection is where they give this person a brand new life, right? They give them a new license, uh, a new name, new social security number, new home, new job, new everything to enter into this program. If you can keep that in your mind, that's what happens to us when we enter into this kingdom of light. Jesus gives us a brand new identity where my purpose comes from Jesus I no longer find my purpose in my job or my kids or my stuff. That's not what makes me who I am. What makes me who I am and gives me purpose is Christ. What gives me peace is not my bank account or my friends. What gives me peace and lets me lay my head on my pillow at night and sleep is knowing that I know Jesus and he knows me. 
What gives me power to live the life that God's called me to live is my connection by faith to Christ. And the pattern that I'm called to follow is Jesus. Living in this kingdom is characterized by following Jesus with this brand new identity. Once I have this new identity, Jesus also gives me an influence and a calling in life to go back to people in darkness and tell them they need Jesus. Church, we're called to be people who are living in the kingdom of light, embracing our identity and our influence in Jesus. If we're going to pass on the faith to the next generation and to the globe, it's got to start by you and I having a faith worth passing on. Number two, this passage also tells us that I believe we've got to embrace God's plan for the family. Look in your Bibles at verses 30 and 31. He says, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. I don't know how many of you watched college football yesterday, but if you watched and you paid attention when the cameras would zoom in on the sidelines and you hopefully avoided seeing the coach use profanity, which sometimes they pick up when the camera goes to the sidelines, but if you watched, you see them with these large, like, laminated sheets, right? And they've got hundreds of different plays, and they've got color-coded charts of what plays are going to run. This is the coach's playbook for that particular game. What I want you to know is that the Bible gives you Jesus's playbook for the family. The Bible is like that laminated sheet that Jesus gives us to say, this is what the family's meant to look like and to be. So what I want to do very quickly is give you three quick, quick elements of the playbook Jesus has for the family, okay? Three quick things that have got to be features in our understanding of what the family is supposed to be if we're going to see this kind of multiplication happen. Number one, we have to have a clear understanding of gender. Gender and gender roles need to be clear. So let me try to make this as plain as I can. God has made us to be male and female. Now, I know that's a controversial claim today, but it's true. Gender is not a continuum in which you can pick which pieces and parts you want of each gender. Gender is binary. Now, we know this biologically. We know that there are biological foundational components of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. If you want more on that, you can talk to someone else. You can talk to Bruce King in the back there. If you want more on the biological differences between a man and a woman, this is probably not the best time for me to unpack all that. don't have time to do that. However, what we sometimes misunderstand is that there's also kind of a complementarity between men and women in the roles or responsibilities God gives them. And when I'm talking about we complement one another, I'm not talking about compliment with an I, where you pay someone a compliment and say something nice to them. I'm talking about compliment with an E, 
were like puzzle pieces. Men and women are meant to embrace certain roles in the home in which God uses those roles for our good and for his glory. So, for example, what the Bible clearly tells us is that men in the family, in the home, are called to be spiritual leaders. Men, you are the ones God holds accountable for the spiritual condition and shape of your home. Ladies, because that's true, if you're married, the Bible calls you to submit or follow your husband's leadership, keeping in mind that his leadership is a servant leadership that puts you ladies ahead of his own needs and desires. This kind of understanding of gender means that men and women are meant to work together to create beautiful, glorious music, if you can use that illustration, for the glory of God in a way that neither could do by themselves. So one of the reasons this is really important is because what we're seeing in our culture today is an attempt to to diminish any differences between men and women whatsoever. And that we stop talking about male and female. What we're seeing in our culture is a move to talk about just being human. It's not talking about male and female. I even heard some crazy person talk about um, how one of the most harmful things you can do today is to assign a child a gender at birth. Have you been in a hospital room before? When the baby comes out, the doctor holds him up or holds her up and says, it's a boy or it's a girl. But we're confused about this. And the reason we're confused is I believe we're trying to diminish any differences between those two genders. And here's the illustration that I would use. It would be like a football team saying, you know, it's really not fair that this guy that throws the ball, the quarterback, gets to have the ball all the time. I think we're all going to play quarterback. There are not going to be any different positions on this team. We're all going to play one spot. And so there you go. Next week in practice, the coach gets everybody lined up and they start playing quarterback. That's the only position they're playing. And one by one, when they take the field, that's all they do. But there's a problem, right? Because when the guy gets there to, to ready to hike the ball and ready to catch the ball, there's no one to give it to him. When he tries to go back to throw a pass, there's no one for him to throw it to. When these defenders start running to try to tackle him, there's nobody to block. Because that team is not functioning properly when you say everybody's got to fit in this kind of unique little box. This is what we're doing with gender. We're trying to say, in the spirit of being politically correct, that there are no differences when in reality, the very differences found in men and women should not be diminished. They should be celebrated as gifts from the Lord that are meant to work together for our good And for God's glory. If we do not understand the foundation of gender in the family, we will misunderstand the purpose God has for the family. Because the second thing I want you to understand about the family is not only is the foundation gender, the next building block on this pyramid is marriage and sexuality. From a clear understanding of male and female roles and that foundational piece that's there, we get the realization that physical sexual intimacy is meant to happen in a covenantal union between a man and a woman. Now, I said covenantal union because I don't think marriage is a contract. 
Marriage is not just a contract between two people where they can walk away if it's not working out. Marriage, biblically speaking, is a covenant between three, among three parties, man, woman, and God. You see, because what marriage is supposed to do, church family, is it's supposed to picture the gospel and the husband's love for the wife and a wife's love for the husband. That's meant to be an illustration to children and to the world of Jesus' love for us. And the great lie that I think we have to fight within this confusion about marriage and sex is that physical intimacy and sex is not just a physical act. When you have sex with somebody, you are sharing yourself with them. You're giving a piece of yourself away. And what we're saying about sex and physical intimacy is that it should be reserved for a covenant between a man and a woman before God. Now, this puts us in a pretty difficult position culturally because marriage is being defined in many different ways today. Um, one of the things that comes as a result of this is it's, it's easy for somebody to think that we are against gay people or we don't like homosexuals, and that could not be further from the truth. We love everyone. We aren't against gay marriage because we're against gay people. We're against any form of sexuality that abandons God's clear principles for physical intimacy. Because we believe that if you abandon God's plan, you inevitably invite harm and destruction into your life. Let me give you an example. Okay? How many of you have heard the name Hugh Hefner? You can admit it. You're in church. I know. You can admit that. Hugh Hefner died about a month ago, give or take. He was the founder of Playboy, and it has been absolutely amazing to me to watch in our culture how people have praised this guy. People have gone out of their way. I was in the grocery store just yesterday, and there was some magazine with him on it with a pipe looking like he was distinguished and refined. And I just want to say to people in our culture, we're propping up someone who did more to demean and objectify women than maybe anybody in the last hundred years. In our so-called feministic culture that's for women's empower, women empowerment and lifting up and, you know, talking about how great ladies are, how can we as a culture celebrate this guy who basically tried to make being an objectifier of women respectable while all the same time lambast this guy named Harvey Weinstein. don't know how many of you have seen that in our media. Harvey Weinstein was a, is a famous movie producer who just recently was exposed for being a serial sexual assaulter. For 20 or 30 years, he's used his position as a movie producer to assault women, to manipulate them. And so here's what makes me crazy, is on the one hand, we're praising this, this objectifier of women... And then when somebody does it, we're confused as to why they would follow the very pattern that was laid out that we praised. I just feel like I'm going crazy sometimes when I watch this in our culture. I don't know if I'm the only one, but it feels a little nuts sometimes to say, praise this and then be shocked and surprised when somebody acts in the very way that you praised. Here's my point. When you abandon biblical sexuality... You invite confusion, deception, and ultimately destruction into your life. 
So let me just for a moment talk to the single people in the room. If you are single, you're not married, the reason I'm discouraging you from engaging in sex before you get married is not because I'm trying to keep you from having a good time. It's not because we're trying to keep you from having fun. It's because God's design is that sex happens best in a covenantal union between God, you, and your spouse. I'm not a prude. I understand that probably a lot of your friends right now, if you're a teenager or you're a young adult and you're single, you're seeing people engage in sexual activity, it's like it's no big deal. Do not buy the lie that sex is just a physical action. It is so much more than that. Please do not buy the lie that sex is just something that happens physically between two people. It is more than that. The best illustration I can give you, I heard somebody share this with me a couple months ago. It's like fire, right? If you have fire in your fireplace, it's beautiful. It warms the house. It's kind of an iconic kind of picture that you see there in your home. It's beautiful. But if you take that same fire out of the fireplace and you unleash it in your home, it will burn the place down. Now let me tie this together, okay? Sex is meant to happen in the fireplace of marriage. And it's great, right? Amen? It's fantastic in the right way, done in the right forum. But if you take that same sex and unleash it in your life outside of God's parameters, it will burn your life down. Do not buy the lie that sex is just something physical. It's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. No, you are sharing part of yourself with someone else every time you do that. And listen to me. Wait for the person that God has for you that's willing to look you in the eye and commit before God and their friends and their family and say, I'm going to be faithful and true to you. Save yourself for that person. Not for somebody that thinks you're the flavor of the month or just happens to have a crush on you that particular time of the year. We have to recognize that if we're going to pass on the faith to the next generation, we have to remember the purpose and role of marriage and sexuality. Number three, real quick. I kind of was fudging on the whole thing about it being quick. I'm taking a longer time than I anticipated. But I had a parent come up to me after the first service and say, take all the time you want. So I'm trying to do that. Thirdly and finally, under this playbook about the family, remember that parents are meant to be guides to their children. So you got the foundation of gender, clear, clear roles of men and women. You've got a beautiful picture of marriage as this covenantal picture of the gospel. And then on top of that, within that framework, you've got a picture in which parents are meant to be guides to their children, pointing them to Christ. So let me be clear about parents what you are not. You are not supposed to be your child's best friend. Your child doesn't need another friend. Your child needs a parent. What is a parent supposed to be? A parent is someone who's supposed to be, through their example and their words, guiding your child to Christ. You're showing them 
Jesus, and you're telling them about Jesus. The primary way I I believe we're called to do this, parents, how do you do that, Spencer? What does that look like? How am I supposed to be a guide to my child? Here's a first practical step that I'd encourage you to consider. Let the gospel that we teach also shape the way you parent your children. Let the gospel that we communicate, that Jesus died for us, that he rose again for our sins, let that gospel we proclaim, let it also shape the way we look at the task of parenting our children. So let me tell you what I mean. You need to look at your children with the understanding that their greatest problem is sin and their greatest need is Jesus. Your child's greatest problem is not getting a scholarship and trying to get a job. It's not their greatest problem. Your child's greatest problem is not finding friends and fitting in at school. Your child's greatest problem is not representing you well and always making you look good in front of others. Your child's greatest need is their sin being dealt with by Jesus Christ. Paul Tripp, in his book, Parenting, which we have at the back Faith at Home Center, I commend it to all of you, uses this example, and I'm going to borrow it. He says, think about this with me. Think about that moment, parents, when you put something in front of your kids that they don't want to eat. You ever been there, moms and dads? Maybe they're little green orbs called peas. Maybe they're green beans. I don't know what your particular child's thing is that they dig in on, but think about that scene. There's the food, and they look at you and say, Mm-mm, I'm not eating that. They cross their arms, their teeth become like a vice grip, right? They purse their lips and they scowl their face. Now, it's very tempting in that moment to think, Do you know what I do for you? Do you know all the cooking and preparation it took to hit that microwave and pop that meal in front of you? I know some of you work a lot harder at that than I do as a dad. But, you know, sometimes it's very easy to get very self-righteous and to take it personally, right? How dare you defy my culinary skills? How dare you refine your palate in such a way that you won't eat whatever I put in front of you? It's very easy to personalize things that aren't personal and to miss a moment of ministry in the life of your child. Because here's what I want to break it to you. You're not seeing your child just show you a refined palate that they have. You're not seeing just your child reject green beans or peas. You're seeing your child show you their hearts. You're seeing your child show you that they don't want to be told what to do. They want to be in charge. It's a regular occurrence in the Plumley house for me to get eye level with Seth or Noah and say, Hey, Seth, remind me who's in charge in this house. And he kind of look at me and go, You are, Daddy. I'm not trying to scare him. I'm not trying to punk him out or anything or push his button. But so often what's happening is in these moments, we're not seeing 
just this surface level thing going on. We're seeing our children reveal their hearts. And what we have to recognize is that this is an opportunity to help our children understand what's going on inside them. For me to say to Seth or to Noah or to Paige, let me help you understand the reason you're doing this is because you think you're a self-appointed, self-sovereign, self-serving little king or little queen. This is what all of us do, and we need Jesus to deliver us. Parents, one of the ways I have begun to try to connect with my children is to quit talking down to them as if I've arrived and never struggled with what they're dealing with and to confess with them that I have the same struggle. So that when my child rejects peace and shows me that he doesn't like authority, that I can look at Seth and say, you know what, Seth? Me too. Me too. I, I have a hard time submitting to authority in my life. I have a hard time what other people have to say to me and, and letting them tell me what to do. Maybe it's not food. Maybe it's procrastination in the life of your teenager, right? We got any procrastinators in here? And it's very easy, parents of teenagers, to look at your children and say, well, in my day, we'd never do this. Really? This is what your child's thinking, by the way. Really? You've never procrastinated? Mom and dad, have you seen our garage? (laughs) Things are going to explode and take out the whole neighborhood. Rather than talking down to our children at times, we can still be in a position of authority and say to them, me too. I often put off things that I find uncomfortable and gravitate to the things that I like to do first. Me too. Because you know what that does for your child? That helps them understand that their mom and dad are real people that struggle with sin just like they do. But when we act like what they're doing is weird and bizarre and they're freaks for procrastinating or, dis- or rejecting peas, we act like their struggle with sin is unique to them and that we've arrived. Now, moms and dads, what I'm, dis- what I'm encouraging is a rejection of prideful parenting that seeks to assert our perfection and arrival over our children and rather an encouragement to humble parenting that has boundaries, that has a sense of authority with which we parent our children, but one in which we are trying to not just get them to obey, but one in which we're trying to help them understand their struggle with sin because you and I have the same struggle just like they do. Now, I don't know if you're thinking this right about now, but some of you might have thought as I went through my progression about the family, well, wait a minute. Gender, marriage, parenting. Not everybody fits in these nice little neat boxes you've got, Spencer. I mean, that's great, but some of us have been divorced. Some of us have gone through the pain of difficulties in our marriages and our home lives. Your, your nice little neat little map there doesn't always work out in real life. What about that? Look back at your Bibles in Psalm 22. The Bible says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Notice this phrase in verse 28. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. God knows that not all of us fit into these nice little neat boxes. And so do you know what God did? 
God said, I'm not just going to create the family. I'm going to create another organism, another family, spiritual family, that can help this biological family. God expresses his kingship in this world and advances the gospel by creating the church. The church is the third point that I want to share with you this morning. How is multiplication going to happen? It's going to happen when we partner with the church. The church is meant to come alongside you as a family and help you, meet you where you are. Guess what? I'm under no illusion as I look out among you people here today that all of us have perfect and we've got it all together and we've never made any mistakes. That is not who we are. God knows that. In fact, you know what's really cool? The God of the Bible who wrote the New Testament through these people wrote the New Testament in a particular era in history when they were filled with brokenness just like you and me. In fact, the New Testament era in which the the Bible was written, the Roman era, was probably more pagan and more confused than you and I are today as a culture. And yet the church thrived and grew The church is working best when the church partners with the family, connects where you are to encourage, teach, and equip you for the task that God's given you. This is why this morning at 9.30, we invited our entire church family to gather together to talk about this new resource we're rolling out to help parents guide their children to Jesus. But I think one of the reasons why I would highlight the role of the family as a way of helping, or the role of the church as a way of helping the family, is because um, of this reality. My boys right now are seven and five years old. And right now, they think dad's pretty cool, right? I'm pretty cool. I can do a lot of stuff. I can teach them things. They enjoy hanging out with me. But if the pattern persists in my children, it's probably going to come a day when they don't think dad's so cool anymore. Teenage years, right? Suddenly when you become a teenager, your parents know nothing. I can tell you this, 35 years old, my parents are geniuses today compared to what I thought about them at 17. My parents are sitting right here too, by the way. So I get, hopefully I get extra points for saying that, but no, you know what happens? You, you turn 16 or 17 and suddenly your parents don't know anything. Now I realize how smart my parents really are. But you know what? Seth and Noah are going to be in that exact same spot. And do you know what I need? I need spiritual influences in the church, in their lives, encouraging, reinforcing what we're teaching at home. So that they don't think, though a mom and dad are saying, well, they just don't understand kids today. You know, we're different. We're cool. We're hip. We don't get it. That there can be other people that come alongside them and say, this is actually what God says, and it actually works even for you when you're 16, when you're 17. Parents, one of the things we have to prioritize is active engagement in a local church because you want those kinds of people shaping and influencing your children. Just to brag on my parents a little bit more, one of the things that they did right with my brother and I, was to make sure we were always actively engaged in a local church so that we had people like Tom McCormick and Mikey Mewborn and others in my life who in some of those pivotal formative years could come alongside our home 
And I, these were guys that I looked up to, right? I thought they were cool. And when my parents became less cool and I thought these guys were cool and my parents and these cool guys were saying the same thing, it was like, wow, amen, exactly. This is legit. This is true. Parents, what we have to do is we have to fight in 2017 to avoid the crazy, stupid, busy pace we put ourselves on and stay engaged in a local church. You will be increasingly forced to ask to choose between staying engaged in a church and some of the extracurricular things that you've got in your life. For the sake of your children and the investment you're making in them, stay engaged. I want to give you one more point before we glow, but I just want to mention that I think this last point will be particularly encouraging to you. That's how I want to close. I've told you that if we're going to pass on the faith of the next generation, we have to um, have a faith worth passing on. We have to embrace God's plan for the family. We have to partner with the church. Now let me give you one more encouraging word. You can do none of this. Are you encouraged? You can do none of it. You're not smart enough. You're definitely not good looking enough. You're not clever enough. You're not educated enough. You don't have the ability in and of yourself to do the very things we're called to do. I mean, my goodness, you and I are called to be a part of global and generational multiplication. You don't have it. You and I are called to do things that we cannot do in our power and our ability. That's why the fourth and final point that I want to offer you today is that we must, if we're going to see this kind of multiplication happen, confess our inability before God and pray and beg for His help. I want to encourage all of you all over this room to grab a card like this. In front of you, in your seats there, you'll find a card like this. I'd like every single person to get one. In the seat back there in front of you, you'll find a prayer card like this. And what I'd like to do this morning is to not get theoretical about this, but actually encourage you to do what we're talking about. I'd like to encourage you to offer a prayer for your family. Maybe it's an inability, a part of your inability you want to confess to God. God, I can't fix these kids. God, I can't love my wife the way I'm called to love her. God, we need wisdom as we're dealing with maybe a child that's not following the Lord. Whatever that thing is, we want to encourage you to put your name and confess that to the Lord. We don't think these cards are magical, guys. We don't think there's anything we've sprayed on these cards that makes them supernatural in any way. We just believe in the power of prayer. And so what we're going to ask you to do today is once you fill that out in the next few moments during this final song, we're going to ask you if you're willing to come forward and to lay one of these cards at this altar, knowing that every single one of them are going to be prayed over by name, specifically, and that we believe that God works powerfully through the prayers of His saints. There's something important about prayer, because while prayer, yes, is communicating to God, it is that. Prayer is also asking God to align our hearts with His. Can I also tell you that at a fundamental level, prayer is acknowledging my need. That's what prayer is. It's saying, God, I need you. 
doesn't matter what every message I get in my culture tells me that I can do it on my own and that I'm strong enough and smart enough and I can just pull myself up by my bootstraps and do it. That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that we desperately need, need Jesus not only to save us, but to sustain us. So if you're here today and you'd be willing to write this on this prayer card in a few moments, when we stand and sing, we're going to ask you to come and lay this at this altar. But I want to go back to something I said a few minutes ago about the two kingdoms. You can never be the parent that God has called you to be unless you know Jesus. I don't care how many strategies you get. I don't care how many books you read. If you've not surrendered your life and repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Christ, you do not understand the struggle your children are going through and their greatest need. I would appeal to you as we close the service, if you've never repented of your sin and turned and trust Jesus and Jesus alone to save you from that sin, that you do that today, that you'd move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. It doesn't have to be anything magical that you say to God. It can be a simple acknowledgement before God that says, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve to die because of the deception that I was born into and the darkness that I live in, but I'm turning from all that and I'm trusting you, Jesus, and you alone. That's a transaction that can happen just between you and God right in the next few moments of silence that we have together. Church, let's be a place that longs to see the kind of multiplication the Bible describes that's global and generational. Would you please pray with me? Every head bowed, every eye closed.